Hello and welcome to Earliest Years of Life. Hi, I'm Zachary Yassin and for the last 15 years I have worked with Bradford's babies, young children and their families. My name's Kerry Bennett and I'm currently working here at Better Start Bradford but my background is in health visiting and children's nursing. This series looks at how babies' earliest months and years gives them the vital tools to help them through the rest of their life. Adverse childhood experiences, more commonly known as ACEs, are one of the greatest unaddressed public health challenges in our nation today. They have a considerable impact on the child's future health, behaviours and opportunity. So, in this episode, we explore the relationship between childhood adversity and outcomes in later life. How can ACEs be prevented in the first place? And how are practitioners and communities working together to ensure safe, stable, nurturing relationships and environments? Our guests today are Warren Larkin, a consultant clinical psychologist and a visiting professor at Sunderland University, where he's working with the Faculty of Public and Population Health. He worked in the NHS for 24 years before founding Warren Larkin Associates in 2017. Thanks for joining us today, Warren. Hello, everybody. And Joe Howes, a senior public health specialist in Bradford and an inspirational leader paving the way with Bradford's ACEs trauma and resilience strategy. Hi, Joe. Hi. A great place to start would be thinking about in relation to adverse childhood experiences, what is adversity and do all children experience it in the same way? Do you think you could kick us off with that, Warren? Yeah, we're looking at developmental trauma, really. I think, you know, we're looking at what are the conditions under which children grow up that affects their natural development. You know, the way the brain grows, the way the body grows, the way the immune system develops, the way the sort of sense of the world and themselves develops. So... I think adversity, certainly when you hear about people describe adverse childhood experiences, they tend to be talking about a list of around 10 things that was first researched in 1998 by Vincent Fleet and Robert Ander. So they coined that term adverse childhood experiences. And ultimately, they were looking at a whole series of things that have an impact on child development. And ultimately, they found lead to poorer outcomes later on, whether that be physical health outcomes, social well-being outcomes or mental health outcomes. Of course, it's not an exclusive list, but the, the list of things they looked at were things like childhood sexual abuse, physical abuse, severe neglect, living at home in a situation where a parent maybe can't look after you because they've got a serious mental health problem or they've got a drug problem or an alcohol problem or maybe that child's growing up in a home where there's domestic abuse or somebody that they live with dies or goes away to prison or there's a relationship breakup. So it's those kinds of things that people are referring to when they talk about adversity in childhood. In the first instance, I think it's probably important to think about what are the impacts on a developing child, you know, in the first thousand days after conception, what are those key things that are happening and that need to happen in order for that child to grow up and be able to manage themselves and the world and have a healthy trajectory, both physically and emotionally? A couple of the things that come to mind are if children don't have a safe, stable attachment relationship with a caregiver, they're going to have problems later on in life, most likely, because ever since John Bowlby talked about the importance of the attachment figure, We've known that children are born with this inbuilt kind of drive to attach to a safe caregiving figure and partly for evolutionary reasons. But we know that if children are not living in a stable environment where they've got access to a safe, reliable caregiver that they can form this stable bond with, that that then can have an unhelpful effect on how they see themselves, how they see the world, how they navigate stress and frustration. 
how they make sense of the social landscape. And also they can struggle with managing their stress response because a related issue to attachment is attunement. The other flip side of growing up in a home that's characterized by adversity is that the chances of you having a caregiver that's tuned into your needs is probably reduced for all of the reasons that we mentioned earlier. One of the crucial things is if you've not had an attuned caregiver, then the chances are you've not learned to regulate your stress response via the process of co-regulation, via that process whereby a caregiver will respond to an infant who's crying or upset or in distress, and they'll typically respond to them predictably and in a timely way, and they'll pick them up and hold them and look at them and verbalize and comfort that child. And when that happens enough, if it happens repeatedly enough times, that co-regulation experience teaches that child to down-regulate the nervous system, to switch off the stress response. And if that hasn't happened enough times during that period of synaptic pruning in that first thousand days when the brain's growing massively, but at the same time trying to become more sleek and efficient, that opportunity to learn stress regulation, to learn to switch off your stress response is to some extent lost for a period of time. It's not lost forever, but you know, ultimately trying to grow up without the ability to manage your own emotional state and to stay in the thinking part of your brain rather than the survival part of your brain and to have a highly sensitized stress response. That means that you're going to struggle later on. And we know from loads of research over the last 20 years that people who've not had that experience struggle with social relationships, struggle with self-regard, self-worth, maybe find difficulty managing their emotions and dealing with frustration and aggression and anger. And, you know, it makes life hard. And we also know that if people struggle to self-regulate, that they in turn have to find ways of feeling at ease and finding comfort. And that often leads to a whole range of health, harm and behaviors in the form of addictions. Because if you can't naturally internally find the resources to calm yourself, you're going to find them somewhere else. So we, we also know there's quite a big body of research that says people who've not had good attuned caregiver experiences in childhood are more vulnerable to addictions later on in life. You mentioned that about how the brain goes through this pruning stage in infancy. I'm guessing that's something that happens again in adolescence. So, you know, the opportunity to learn to self-regulate, is that something that could still happen at a later point in life? Definitely. Because that early co-regulation experience is fundamental, it doesn't mean that later on people can't learn to self-soothe and self-regulate. You know, a lot of schools that I'm aware of and working with are using strategies to help young children understand what's happening in the brain. You know, sometimes they use the Dan Siegel model, the hand-brain model, where they teach children about what's happening in their emotional state. So they kind of explain the different functions of the brainstem and the survival part of the brain and the limbic system, the emotional part of the brain and the prefrontal lobes where all that executive and higher order thinking happens. So by teaching children that method of understanding, that metaphor, if you like, that model for brain and stress response activity, then you give them a way of understanding that actually when they start to feel a certain way, that means that they're going to flip the lid. It means that they're executive control is going offline and they're moving more into that emotional or survival state. That's one way of helping children understand and adults and carers understand the model for what's happening in the brain. But also you can help children learn to self-regulate by teaching them about boundaries, teaching them about problem solving, about respect and reciprocation and mindfulness techniques. And, you know, having areas at school where children can have time out and calm themselves. It's not that you can't learn self-regulation because we kind of all have to find a way 
it's just that in those early years, that attunement is crucial. There's something there about positive role modelling from what you're describing in settings. Do you think the workforce recognise that sometimes they might be that buffer or they might be that positive role model in the life of a young child or a young person? That's a really important point because there are a lot of schools and a lot of settings where we provide support for people. They're very much driven by targets and like, for example, schools, they're the most important frontline public health offer that we've got next to health visitors. What we know is that educational attainment is really important in life, but it's secondary to the task of developing emotional competence. You know, I left school with bugger all qualifications, but I managed to catch up later on. I was fortunate enough to leave school with some emotional skills and I knew about relationships and boundaries and could self-regulate, could manage frustration, could problem solve. The most important thing we can do for young people and children is to model appropriate social behaviour. Anybody who works with young people and schools, there needs to be an appropriate balance between instruction or intervention or whatever it is we're doing and an emphasis on that emotional well-being side, the things that young people need to navigate the world. Everybody should know about the impact of child development. Everybody should know a bit about the impact of adversity and stress. Everybody should know a little bit about what promotes resilience and well-being. I think these are important public health messages. And if you think about it, it took us over 50 years to ban smoking in public. And that's after we knew very reliably that it killed people. So from a public health perspective, this is no different. This is a massive opportunity to improve health. And we're 20 years into that journey since that original ACE study. I just hope that we kind of make slightly quicker progress than we did with smoking. But I suppose I'm using the example to say that it is complicated, but we can do it. It's a great example is that I haven't thought about in terms of the public health smoking agenda, but it is a great example of those things that at the time at which it started, people probably did think it was going to be a quick fix. And actually, when we can look back and we can see how long it's taken, again, in Bradford, we would love to be able to be brave enough to articulate how long this journey might take us. But as with all things, particularly when we're talking about strategy development and policy implications, we're always stuck to a timeline that feels more immediate future. So people are asking what's going to happen in one year, what's going to happen in three. And of course, when you do think about the smoking public health agenda, it did take generations. And those of us that work so closely with Better Start Bradford and think about intervening early in a child's life, sometimes we have to be brave enough to say some of this work that we're doing is going to take a generation and a generation can be 30 years. And some of that around the understanding of the implications but also then how our children go on to parent themselves when you talk about regulation and you talk about understanding brain development and child development. We know that so much is around how you are parented yourself and then how you go on to be a parent. I definitely think we are moving quicker with this one. And I think it's something that people intuitively understand. You know, you talk to a group of people from whatever background, you know they come out of that discussion wanting to see improvements and a better future for the next generation. It's something that people completely get. They know that if bad things happen to you in your childhood, it makes your life harder. It isn't rocket science. We've known that for a long time. But what we can do now, and I think what we are starting to do now, is to put this information into the hands of the public, put this information into the hands of the workforce, and we're starting to take action on it. We're starting to create the knowledge and skills and attitudes and permission in the workforce to do something about this. And once you start making this a kind of everyday conversation, like we did with suicide, you know, 30 years ago when I was training, 
it wasn't encouraged that you talk to people who come to you with a mental health problem about suicide because there was this belief that it somehow might make it worse. But we know now that the opposite is true, that actually if you're open and honest about it, that people feel empowered to tell you if they feel that that's something that's, you know, a potential for them. By normalising it and by making it a part of everybody's agenda, you accelerate that cultural change. I just wanted to touch on workforce a little bit more and maybe just dispel a myth or, or just gauge your thoughts on it because we sometimes see practitioners and I, I understand why, you know, time pressures on them and on resources in services or maybe lack the skill and the confidence to be more curious and ask the question, you know, what has happened to this person. People think that asking the question equals needing more resource for that family or for that child. What are your thoughts on that? Does that equate to more resources needed? Are we opening a can of worms? You hear that expression, don't you? Which oh I don't God. like myself. I know, oh I know. <laughs> but you hear it, don't you? You hear it. Listen, the can of worms is something that professionals worry about. It isn't something that people who are seeking our help worry about. Because they've come to us. They've asked for our help. We're trying to support them. And... If we know that most people we see are affected by trauma and adversity, then it's our duty of care to find out about their lives and the things that might be affecting their health and well-being. Professionals worry about asking people about difficult life experiences or adverse life experiences. And it usually comes from a good place. There's a real professional care and concern that we don't upset people or we don't make them feel worse. I've been training teams in this approach for years. What we know is that when you give people a little bit of confidence and a bit of training and their organization gives them permission, staff adapt to this really well. They make it a part of their assessment. You put it in context. You make this conversation understandable to the client. So they kind of understand if they're coming to you asking for help and you're assessing their needs, that you'll probably ask them about what's happened in their life. People expect that. This idea that it increases demand. The evidence is the opposite, of that, actually, that when you start to ask people about their adverse experiences in the context of their health assessment, that actually they tend to use less resources afterwards, less appointments, less medication. That's a really interesting consideration, isn't it? Because I think sometimes when we as commissioners of services for areas in which we work consider the opportunities that we have to ask more in those routine contacts that we have with families and young children. I think there is a bit of pushback that probably does think that it's going to either need a service that we don't currently have and what will we do about that or what will we do where we find a nuance that actually means that there is more resource required and obviously Unfortunately, in this world we live in at the moment, we don't have probably quite enough resources as it is. So if we, going back to Kerry's term of open a can of worms, and we've definitely had those conversations, and I certainly agree it's not a good enough reason to then mean that we hold back on something that we think is vital for our families and our children. And it's not good enough as a commissioner of services to say, well, actually, we're nervous about what that might bring. But I think there's twofold there. There's thinking about what it might mean to the family and where you started with Actually, it's really good to ask those questions and families are ready for it and they want to be able to share and it will potentially resolve issues for a family without needing any additional extra. But the other counter argument to that is, well, actually... 
do we need to be ready for that? Do we need to set up services before we start to change the conversations we're having in the district? Or can we be brave and can we start those conversations first? And that comes to workforce development. Certainly in Bradford, we're ready, we believe, to train our workforce very much more in this. And a lot of it is happening already. And it's just under a different banner, perhaps, or it's being termed in different things. And certainly as a health visitor in my past, maybe not more than 20 years ago, but certainly before the ACEs conversation was happening, we would talk about toxic trio and we would certainly open up those conversations without being scared that it might find more than we were ready to serve. I completely agree with you. We can't wait for the perfect time. I think what we should do is acknowledge that there will be some people who need specialist help and we need to know what's available locally and have done our due diligence around that. But actually, my experience in looking at the evaluations of the training that I've provided for teams Most of the time, the people that have chosen to disclose to you in context of the assessment process, they want the person that's asked them to say, thank you for sharing that with me. I believe you. That was really brave of you. You must be so strong and resilient to have coped with that. And I really appreciate you trusting me with it. And then you get the chance to say, is any of that stuff you just told me still happening? And do I need to keep you safe? And if it's not, you then get to say, And can we help you with any of those things? Are any of those things still bothering you? That's the opportunity where someone could unburden and have that therapeutic experience of telling someone they trust and respect what they've been through, being listened to. And then for that person to be able to say, well, do you know what? That wasn't your fault. That happened to you, not because of you. And it's such a simple thing that we can be asking people to do who may already be doing it and doing it in a slightly different way. And it's so simple. It's a real take-home message around that kind of response to what you hear. So I know the workforce may be a little scared about asking questions and not sure if they're skilled to respond, but just hearing you speak about, well, actually, a simple sentence such as, you're so strong to have dealt with that and do you want to tell me more, can be so kind of refreshing to think, actually, I don't need piles and piles and reams of research to tell me this. I don't need days and days of training. I don't need yet more qualifications. I need to be given those words that I can use that feel the right thing to say. Yeah, I think some training's helpful. What we've learned over the years is some training is really helpful to get people out of the blocks. It's not; It doesn't have to be extensive. You're not asking people to do anything that's highly complex, but the things that seem to help and over the years we developed this five-stage process to kind of make this sustainable you know first one is let's do a bit of thinking about if we're ready for this and it's the right time to make this part of our service there's no point asking people to do something additional and relational when they're already struggling with overwhelming demand and lack of time and they've got no supervision they've got no safeguarding support and all of that so there's some kind of like thinking at the beginning then a little bit of planning then a bit of training and confidence building and then obviously giving the workforce the opportunity to talk about that work that they're doing because you know when you start to talk to people about difficult life events and they start to tell you about their lives then we've got a duty to look after the workforce as well so in its essence it's incredibly simple we give people a little bit of skill and confidence it becomes part of everyday practice the principle is very simple and service users and families appreciate being asked that's the other thing 
Sometimes when individuals are in a situation like a home visit, for example, there might be some hesitancy in asking questions that might trigger things for people themselves. So, you know, having that infrastructure, having things like restorative supervision, just a general check in, how are you doing? How was that debriefing after a visit are all things that we need to be thinking about when designing services. A lot of services do have that in place. They're primarily health services that we're talking about that have that. And I think if we go back to the beginning of the conversation when we spoke about schools and young people, I fear that the conversations that happen outside of the health workforce and potentially in the education workforce or in the broader voluntary sector don't necessarily have that infrastructure in place to support their workforce. And quite often in the lives of young people will be the protective adult, maybe the person that actually is in the right position at that time in that child or that family's life to support them. And actually, quite often, and probably more often than we consider, it's not the workforce that we primarily think of. Quite often, it is our volunteers. So it's those volunteers that are in homes that have had the opportunity to build up relationships, because actually all of this is on a footing of relationship-based settings. And that's quite often volunteers who have more time, are quite often from the worlds of those that they're supporting, And actually, we don't necessarily have that supervision in place for them. So I think as an infrastructure, we do need to think about that. That is one of the things that we're trying to do in Bradford is to make sure that that is more readily available for those that need it. Not necessarily embellishing that which already happens in the likes of health visiting and maternity services, where, like you say, safeguarding supervision is readily available. And so it should be. But actually, in the much wider environment, we need to think about that as well. Everybody comes from a background and not everybody is ready to either share that or to be supporting others until they've been supported themselves. I think some of the work in Bradford, particularly around workforce, has been looking at not just training and upskilling our workforce, but looking at that wraparound support that's needed. And I think it's really evident that we need to kind of be learning lessons from colleagues and practices within health, maternity, and see whether we can embed that in that kind of wider partnership working. It boils down to relationships and it boils down to who is actually getting through that door and building those relationships with families. And a lot of the times it is volunteers. Absolutely. And we'd love to be in a position, wouldn't we, where some of the services that would have historically built those relationships over multiple visits, for example, and that would have been something that a midwife would have done many years ago and a health visitor in the world in which we live in now and the way in which we've set up services, which are much more integrated services, but mean that we've got many more personnel in families' lives and not just one person doing everything. And of course, it would have been a GP as well in years gone by that would have known everything about that family and probably would have been looking after that family's well-being for many generations and therefore would absolutely be able mm. to see that intergenerational aspect of ACEs. So we need to find ways of mitigating what we don't know and giving those families opportunities to tell us their story. But I know we are quite often criticised by families that they have to tell us their story over and over again to new people. I think what people are really meaning is they want to really know the person that's helping them. And so I think we need to find ways of making that happen for our families. I think that's so fundamentally important. We know from years of psychotherapy research that the single most important factor or most predictable factor in positive change is the quality of the therapeutic relationship, the connection between those two people. And especially if you're going to talk about trauma or adversity, you don't want to be a worker that's only going to see that person or that family once. 
and then they tell you their deepest, darkest secrets and trust you and they never see you again. You know, that is not a good experience most of the time. So there's something about deciding who are the right people to have these conversations, what's the right context, and is there going to be an ongoing relationship? And, and, and if they need some help, can we offer it? This is why I think health visitors are in a brilliant position to do this personally. So when I started doing this work called REACH, Routine Inquiry About Adversity in Childhood, this program, the origin of that was thinking about prevention, thinking about how do we help people who've been affected by adversity to change direction and have a better outcome, a better experience. But also how do we help them as parents to sort of break that cycle and not pass that on to their children? When we trained health visitors in Blackburn and more recently in Blackpool and in Nottinghamshire, it's a wonderful primary prevention opportunity. You know, asking new parents or parents-to-be, tell me about your life experience. Is there anything happened in your life? And is that still troubling you in any way that means that we can offer you some help? That's such a powerful moment. It is. And it's great that you see the power of the health history in there. I think there's also that moment in pregnancy in midwifery services when it's an opportunity to have some of those conversations about those new parents-to-be's experience of parenting themselves before baby is here and before you're focused on this new life that you have responsibility for, which in itself can be a really daunting task. But in pregnancy, there's lots of opportunity to have those conversations that I think at the moment are possibly missed. We're on a journey of thinking about what it is that we could do with changing within the opportunities that we have. And antenatal education and that one-to-one opportunity that we have in pregnancy could be an opportunity for that. And of course, that would bring in more of the workforce than health visiting, who obviously have a prime spot to have these conversations, not only because they have those conversations in the privacy of a person's home, but also that they are a well thought of workforce that actually can then go away and do something. And it goes back to what you were saying about whether then there's an opportunity to actually act. And you don't really want to divulge, like you say, your darkest secrets to someone who you don't think is then going to pick them up and help you with whatever it is you need next. And the thing is, most people in our experience and in looking at the international studies, whilst this idea of ACE inquiry is still relatively new, there have been enough studies now to know that most people want a caring response, a compassionate response from the person they've told. And only a relatively small percentage of people want or need specialist psychotherapy you know um, most people want to make sense of what happened and think about well is this still affecting me and if it is is it relevant to what I'm struggling with is this related to my drinking or my drug problem or my mental health issues or is it something that I've dealt with it makes me wonder whether even just by starting the conversation but also trying to amplify that into communities Will, without even the need for the workforce, without even the need for it to be a particular person asking that question, whether people can start to have those reflections on their lives themselves without the need for input from a service. I wonder whether the conversations that we're having in Bradford with our communities about what their understanding is already and what we can do to help that, whilst not having to have a one-to-one conversation, but by just listening to a conversation like this and understanding that actually what happened to you as a child has an impact on your life. And maybe the reason that you're feeling and having some of the things happen to you in your life that you haven't really been able to explain before could be enough and maybe will be enough for a portion of the population to just understand. And like you say, don't really need anything, but would love to have that reason explaining to them about what it is that's happening in their lives. I know that happens for a lot of people. Every time in the pre-COVID world, I speak at an event, people come up to me and go, oh my God, 
it's the first time I've recognised that this in my life is related to this. And I've been working as a midwife or a health visitor or a mental health worker for 20 years. And it's never dawned on me that maybe my issues are related to what happened in my childhood. I have no doubt that as soon as you put this information into the hands of the public, they do very smart things with it, both on an individual level, but also at a wider level. There's a lot of talk about mental health first aid and all of those things at the minute, which is, you know, a great idea. One of the things I think is if someone tells you something really difficult that's happened in their life, best thing you can do is just respond in a kind and compassionate way. You know, you don't have to be a therapist. You don't have to go, oh, that's that's not something I'm qualified to talk about. You just deal with it as you would if it was a friend telling you something. Thank them and tell them that it wasn't their fault and that ask them if they need any help. Ultimately, the way you respond to someone's disclosure probably will determine whether they're ever going to talk to anybody else about it again or ever going to seek help from professionals again. Getting that right, I think, is a real contribution to somebody's journey. You mentioned there, Warren, about pre-COVID, and I'm starting to think of what life will look like after lockdown, you know, increase of mental health issues, difficulties, whether that's been due to, you know, loneliness or that home environment, what can we predict? What, you know, professionals and communities need to be sort of more vigilant about and looking out to support people? It's been a really, really difficult time for a lot of people. And I think this period will be the defining event in the lives of a generation of young people and vulnerable adults. Many people have been removed or prevented from accessing the usual sources of support that provide them with resilience that they normally have access to, you know, like the safe adults in their lives and the activities and groups that uh, allow them to feel like they can manage with whatever else is happening in their life. But if you look at research from people like Richard Bentall, who's a colleague in psychology, who's at the University of Sheffield, his group have looked at a representative sample from when COVID first started through to the present day. And they're finding that it's a more variable picture. Some people have struggled and the people that have really struggled are the ones that have been obviously exposed to domestic abuse and living in a home where where there's been a lot of conflict uh, or drug problems, people with existing mental health problems, those people struggle more. But some people have done relatively well. And actually, his research suggests that a lot of people have weathered the storm pretty well, actually. And there's been a lot of resilience in the population. Is it worth thinking about what that resilience is? And I think that some of the things that you've spoken about are those protective factors that we talk about and you use them in your description there around what people may be missing you know so maybe they are missing their sports club or they're missing going to school because that's where their protective adult is for example if you flip that on its head that reminds us about what it is that we need to be providing in this moment not only to be able to replace what those have missed that already were using that but for those where this is a new presentation and now we need to think about protection and we need to think about what actually we need to put in place in a local area to make sure that those things are there. So it is around extracurricular activity, is around sports, it is around the mental health support that we offer in schools that is accessible and it is about making it accessible. It is around how we make sure that those domestic violence services that have been under-resourced are now fully resourced to be able to offer that support in the aftermath of what it is that we've lived through. But I think you touched on protective factors there when you're talking about what probably has been missed. But it's really helpful for us when we think about, well, actually, what is it that we need to make sure is in place? Because actually some of that describes to us beautifully what it is, therefore, that we may or may not need more of. 
Warren, how do we define resilience? There's a huge, immense body of literature on resilience, but I'll give you my version of it. I think it's about how we cope and manage stress. For me, resilience is multifaceted. It's made up of lots of things. It's made up of lots of skills and assets and resources. It can change over time. And it can change according to circumstance. It encompasses cultural factors, spiritual factors, physiological factors, psychological factors, relationships. It's a whole list of things that can be built and acquired over the lifetime. It's important to recognize that it's about adapting, you know, so it's not about being strong. In my opinion, that's the wrong way of making sense of it. It's about adapting. You know, if you think about the oak tree, you see them blown over every winter, don't you? They, they stand strong and then they crack. We don't want to be like that. We want to be like the willow. It bends. We need to bounce back. So I think resilience is about adaptation. Uh, and I think it's about developing skills, coping mechanisms, attitudes, relationships, sources of strength and coping that bring you in your own unique way to a point where you can cope with stress. If you think about the things that you rely on when things are really difficult or when things have been really, really tough, that'll be your list of resilience factors. And the the challenge we've got as professionals and as parents and members of the public is, you know, how do we make sure that we make use of all of those things for ourselves and for our children? It's interesting, isn't it, when we think about resilience, because I think sometimes you just need that time to sit and reflect on what resilience is. And sometimes you don't really realise what it is that you're drawing on until you have that space to actually think about it. And it does make us as parents, as the workforce, it doesn't really matter in what world you're sitting, because of course, we all cross boundaries. We are parents as well as workforce, as well as those that are developing service. But when you have that moment to sit back and think, okay, what is it that means that from one moment moment to the next, I can feel particularly resilient to not feeling. And I think when you talk about connection, I think it is that for a lot of people. And I think many will sit and listen to this conversation and think, right, where do I draw my strength from? And I think it's really important, as you say, that we don't make this where you need to put extra effort. This is about what is around you and what it is that you can draw on with ease. And those of us that are commissioning services need to make that easy as well. So I think that's as much on us to make that easy. I think we need to be making it easy to access the information that you need. So you don't feel blind when you have new baby, but actually you've been taught about connection and talking to your baby. There's also a responsibility on us to make sure, for example, that schools do offer those things that build resilience in our young people. So whether that is the football club for the child that finds resilience from that, or whether it's from music and whether it's from other interventions around conversation and mindfulness, it falls on a multiple approach. Some people need to take ownership of that on an individual level, but then there is also the family and the community that we need to think about as well. And we're trying to make sure that we think about all of those things when we start to develop the strategy in Bradford at the moment. We often think about complicated and technical interventions and specialist treatments and all these things. And actually, it's all of those social things. And I like the kind of growth in this idea of social prescribing. And I like the idea of social asset building and all of those things, because I think most people want to need the same things we do as professionals. You know, we're, we're all the same in the sense that the things that help us cope when things are difficult, they're the same for all of us as human beings, you know. If, if every professional knew a little bit about the fact that feeling a sense of belonging helps people cope with stress, feeling perceived social support helps people cope with stress, 
having some exercise, having good sleep, having good nutrition, having safe adults in your life when you're a kid. All of these things are not complicated. We're so used to picking up the pieces and focusing on pathology, aren't we, in services, that sometimes we forget about focusing on and emphasising the things that preserve and promote health. So, Warren, you mentioned the importance of social asset building, and that is a cornerstone of the Bradford Aces Trauma Resilience Strategy. Joe, is it, what can people expect from the strategy and what can we kind of foresee happening over the next couple of years? I think some of the things that you can expect to see from the strategy, are the, we are really focused on the workforce, but we're also really focused on the community. There's parts of that that come together and we realize all the time about the cross-cutting themes around community, workforce, schools, early years and those that are responding to ACEs. At the centre of all of that is a conversation to try and highlight what ACEs are, how we articulate that and the language that we use. Hopefully this conversation will help us understand that language and sometimes how we get bogged down with the language, but also that this is things that we've been talking about for many years, but we need a refocus. And it gives us that impetus to be able to drive forward with some of the things that have been a little bit in the background. We have lots of wonderful expertise in Bradford and we have lots that we can draw upon, whether that is pots of wonderful training for the workforce, pots of wonderful expertise around supervision. We also have communities that know their communities and they know exactly what it is that people are struggling with and what it is that is that adversity that they're facing and also can come up with some wonderful ideas and Better Start Bradford have shown that. And quite often when we are able to do that insight work and we are able to have conversations with our community, they will come back that they need activities that are fun, that are creative, that help them support each other in a way in which they want to be supported themselves. So we're going to dig down a bit deeper into that, try and get some consistency and try and spread that wider than it is already and make those opportunities available for people. Hopefully, at the end of that marathon, we will be both preventing ACEs and also providing the resilience for those that we cannot prevent and thinking about how we mitigate against them, accepting that actually some of what our world brings to us means that we probably can't prevent ACEs in their entirety. I do think it's really exciting what you're doing in Bradford and obviously Better Start's kind of central in all of that. So fundamentally for me, prevention rather than cure is where the solutions are and I think the fact that you're spending so much time and effort thinking about prevention in the early years but also tying that into a broader strategy around preventing and mitigating adverse child experiences I think that's fantastic and you know ultimately others will catch up with you and there's a lot of interest and a lot of effort going on around the country but yeah clearly what you're doing is inspirational and what a wonderful vision for the future. This is Earliest Years of Life, the Better Start Bradford podcast, and it's time now for the two-minute mic takeover. In every podcast, we give our guests two minutes to share a key message on today's topic for practitioners or decision makers. So Warren, you have two minutes for your key message. Starting now. I think the first thing to say is prevention rather than cure has to become the new status quo. That should be what we expect for our citizens, for our communities. To do that, we're going to need long-term cross-sector collaboration and we're going to have to reinvest in those interventions that we know make the difference. Based on the evidence, we know there are four areas that we can make the most difference with. First one is primary prevention. Second one is early help and support for families, including financial help. The next one is 
better detection and mitigation of adversities. So asking people what happened to them, offering to help them earlier on because we know what's going on. And the last one in that list is resilience building across the life course. You know, there are so many things we know build resilience and help people cope that we don't have as much of as we used to. So that's going to be the shift from pathogenesis, this idea that we try and fix things when they're broken to salutogenesis, the notion of health promoting and health preserving factors. So I think that's where we've got to go in the future. Making a shift towards this investment back in preventative interventions and preventative services is a partnership-wide activity. To do that, you have to be really clear about what your shared vision is. The, the old anecdote of JFK going to NASA, bumping into the guy in the corridor going, what do you do here? And the guy's sweeping the floor and he says, well, I help put people on the moon. You know, it's that kind of clarity of vision that we want for people to get on board with this 20 to 30 year journey. This is complex stuff and it does sometimes feel overwhelming. But you can't wait for the perfect time to do something about it. You can't wait for another year of strategic planning until everything lines up perfectly. We're talking about system change. It's going to be complicated. It's going to be difficult. There are going to be obstacles, but we can't keep waiting. I'll use the words of Arthur Ashe, the first African-American Grand Slam winner, civil rights activist and campaigner. And he said, when things seem insurmountable and you're not sure you're the right person to be doing it, you just have to get your head down, start where you are, use what you have and do what you can. That's it. Your two minutes are up. Thank you for joining us today, Warren. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for your time and absolutely the fascinating discussion and so inspiring to hear that things are moving on with ACES. Well, listen, thanks very much for the invitation. I really appreciate your uh, interest in the work that I'm doing and also it's really wonderful to hear more about what's happening in Bradford as well. So yeah, thanks very much for the chance to talk with you. And thank you so much, Joy. It's been absolutely brilliant hearing about the amazing journey Bradford has embarked on. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been lovely as Warren said and I'm really excited about what's happening in Bradford I think we've got great opportunities so uh, thanks for having me today I think my reflection on today's discussion is that we're on the right track and we're bringing the right people together and how brilliant is it to be living and working in Bradford right now when we are having the conversations about how we get it right for the next generation Thank you for listening to Earliest Years of Life, the Better Start Bradford podcast. And please don't forget to hit subscribe and rate it as well. In the next episode, we'll be exploring the link between green space, air quality and mental well-being in babies, children and their families. To find out more about how we support baby and toddler development across this part of West Yorkshire, head over to betterstartbradford.org.uk. Until next time. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.